This is To The Point with Marcus Amick, where we cut through all the noise to discuss the things driving the world of automotive sales and service. Let's get to it. To The Point is brought to you by RockEd, the automotive industry's leading performance and engagement platform. To learn more about how RockEd helps you turn training into profitability, visit us at rocked.us. That's R-O-C-K-E-D dot U-S. There is no better way to grasp automotive buying and service trends than asking consumers directly about their preferences and habits. After all, consumers are the driving force in every facet of the business. And staying abreast of what and how they actually think should be a general mode of operation for anyone charged with marketing, selling, or servicing vehicles, especially in today's highly competitive market. For more than a decade, the consulting and research company Deloitte has released an annual study focused on doing just that, surveying consumers on a variety of issues that critically impact the automotive business. Deloitte's 2023 Global Consumer Study builds on that idea even more by probing 26,000 consumers in 24 countries on issues spanning consumer interest in EV adoption to their preferences when it comes to connected vehicle technologies. In this episode of To The Point, we talk to Ryan Robinson, automotive research leader with Deloitte, to delve into some of the key findings of the 2023 study for U.S. consumers and how it all impacts the business of marketing, selling, and servicing cars. Ryan, thank you for joining us on To The Point again. Thanks for having me, Marcus. This study covers a lot of ground, Ryan. But I really want to zero in on a couple of things, uh, beginning with the fact that among all those surveyed globally, the U.S. consumer market ranked the highest among all markets when it comes to consumers who still prefer an ICE or internal combustion engine vehicle uh, for their next purchase. How, how does that compare to previous studies and what does it say about the challenge automakers face in this push to get more consumer buy-in on electrification? Yeah, so I, you know, I think that the first thing to note is that we do see uh, some positive movement, right? If you if you flip it around, and you say, well, you know, what's the percentage of people that continue to to think about moving away from? Uh, what you might call a more traditional uh, internal combustion engine vehicle for their next ride, it's come down just in a year-over-year sense from 60, where we were at last year at around 68%, to where we sit at 62% in the U.S. this year. So that's very positive, right? Um, the I guess you have to think about where where is that level of interest going, though? And, you know, we went from you know, the interest, the level of interest in all battery electric vehicles last year is sitting at around 5%. It's only really ticking up to about 8% this year. So our our data is still telling us that, you know, consumers, when it comes to intent, are still much rather, um, you know, to, to go to more of a half step and think about a hybrid technology rather than kind of a full battery electric. And, and why is that? What are what are the obstacles here? 
Oh, I think when you when you think about obstacles, right? It's <clears throat> it is uh, still kind of a you know a, a cast of usual suspects, right? So the number one um, you know barrier to uh, to you know more EV adoption is is definitely, or I should say, all battery power EV adoption is uh, is definitely still a cost price premium. But the number two and the number three um, barriers in driving range and time required to charge. And even the number four uh, challenge, the lack of public charging infrastructure, those things all kind of, you know, coalesce around this idea of range anxiety. So, you know, you still you, you have a um, you have a consumer base that is one, you know, reeling from some of the uh, the impacts of a, uh, you know, a challenging economic environment. Um, and, you know, increasingly we think that or our data is telling us that um, you know the move to EV is is not about consumers um, necessarily wanting to save the planet. It, it is definitely a pocketbook issue. The number one reason or motivator for consumers to think about an EV is the fact that there is a perception that they're going to be uh, able to to dramatically lower their fuel costs going forward in doing that. So, you know, it's a, it's definitely um, kind of a, um, you know, a twofold issue. One, are we allowing consumers to access EV technology um, at a price point that they're willing or increasingly are they able to pay for it? And, you know, are we providing them the infrastructure that would allow them to a level of comfort that they're making the, the right decision to satisfy their mobility requirements? You know, when when you talk about or, or mention the idea of, of range, it just seems like we're still, the industry overall is still fighting this battle of getting consumers to understand range and get over that anxiety issue. Uh, do you think that the industry overall is doing um, a good job of dealing with that issue? And if not, why or what? What's what are we missing here? You know, it, I mean, the first knee-jerk reaction I have for you is, you know, obviously not, right? Because this is something that keeps coming up in our study data, you know, year over year, right? This this idea of range anxiety and the reality of the situation is that, you know, from even some of the the other studies that we run, we actually ask consumers um, about their their average daily driving distance, and right now, it's sitting at about thirty miles a day. And when you think about, you know, what uh, even full battery electrics, uh, this current generation of those vehicles are are able to do, you know, it's it's you know, it's multiples of of that, right? So, you know, in terms of satisfying people's daily driving requirements, um, and you also have to think about, you know, the the change in um, how people think about and what the reality of um, you know, a, a tank full of energy, let's say, right? So before you had to actually go somewhere offsite in, in the, the form of a service station to fill up your car with gas. Now, you know, we know that the vast majority of people who are going to be buying a or intending to buy a, an electric vehicle are going to be charging it at home at night. It's around three and four uh, EV intenders in, in our study tell us that. So Every the the impact of that is every day people are going to be leaving their driveway with a full tank of of fuel, right? So, you know, it's a it, it's an idea that we still 
we still need to address the fear that consumers have, this primal fear that, you know, they're going to be stuck on the side of a highway uh, in the middle of winter with a car with a dead battery, right? And we've actually, you know, seen a couple of incidences where that actually was the case. And so, you know, we're spending a lot of money right now, um, both publicly and privately, to build out this public charging infrastructure. And, you know, the reality is, you know, we need, I think there's a lot more thought that needs to be put into, you know, how we get the best bang for our buck and spend that money efficiently so that we're trying to best address the actual problem, right? Which is, you know, the, the odd time that people are driving, you know, more than, um, you know, 60 miles away from, from their home, right? Which really isn't, you know, the bulk of the driving that people do. So when you, when you take that in, into consideration and what the survey reveals about sort of this, this idea of making it easier for EV owners to pay for public charging, are you saying that that's not as much of an issue um, as some of the other things you've noted? The thing about paying for public charging, and this is like a this is a new question that we asked in the survey this year because we really wanted to get at, um, you know, some of the anecdotal stories that that we've been hearing that, you know, the push uh, that you know either manufacturers or charging networks have around you know trying to keep people within their ecosystem or their walled garden, to borrow an expression, right? Because it's not just the uh, the the payment of the the electricity that you know you would uh, you would be able to benefit from as a provider of charging it's also the underlying data that is so valuable uh, these days right to try to understand consumer behavior but the reality is you know when we when we ask consumers how they would most prefer to pay for public EV charging. The number one method of payment is, you know, either credit or debit card. Around a little over half of consumers tell us that essentially they would, you know, most want to continue with what they already know and how they already pay for for gasoline today and how they've paid, you know, up until this point for decades, right? So, you know, the upshot to that is, and what we're trying to communicate to industry is that, look, we understand the need for, you know, trying to to keep people within your ecosystem. But if the lived experience among consumers is that they have to have, you know, two, three, four different apps on their phone, depending on, you know, what what charging network they, they rock up to when they're out and about, um, that that's friction, right? And that's just not a good customer experience. So, you know, there is a definite need for us to um, as a whole, considering the kind of enormity of the transition to electric mobility that we're trying to affect here, there is a need for us to think lar- more kind of outside our own needs as as companies, right? And think about, you know, trying to participate in a charging network that is, you know, fric- as frictionless as possible, because that's really the only way that we're going to move the masses towards an EV future. Is that is that specific to the U.S. market when it comes to that that challenge? Yes, actually, it is because well, depending on the on the market that you look at around the world, there's um, there are markets, particularly in Asia Pacific region, where we know that the the uptake of digital payment tools, particularly um, you know through smartphones 
is so much more ubiquitous than it is here. Um, there is, you know, a, uh, a difference in some markets where people do actually, the majority of people do want to, you know, use apps on their smartphone because that's just how they pay for, you know, most of the things in their daily lives, right? Nowadays. Um, but here in the U S it's, it's definitely still, you know, a more, what you might call analog experience with credit and debit cards, um, you know, for lack of a better term. And is is there some correlation between um, that and sort of the the challenge in terms of this wider adoption of EVs? Like, I'm just thinking of the idea of technology itself. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword in some ways, right? I mean, the, the technology uh, definitely allows us to, to, to be more flexible um, and to offer, in many ways, more convenient um, experiences for consumers. But right now, when, when we think about how some of the charging infrastructure is being developed, it's a bit like the Wild West out there right now, where there's a lot of people rushing into the space and trying to become you know, network providers for charging. Um, and it seems like there's, you know, chargers popping up all over the place and, you know, that's, that's just, it, it's not efficient. It's not an efficient way of thinking about the system as a whole. Right. So, you know, uh, building a charging infrastructure along interstate highways, along routes that, you know, people would be taking, um, to be that far away from their home such that they need public charging. That's where the good money is being spent. Putting chargers on, you know, in parking lots on, you know, put, you know, everywhere across America is not necessarily going to get us to where we need to go. Wow. Another interesting point was that the, the U.S. ranked uh, within the survey, the U.S. ranked the, the lowest among global markets surveyed in preference in preference for new vehicle dealers as primary service providers. What does that say about the current state of dealerships as service providers and what dealerships need to be doing to prepare for the future, especially as it relates to this transition to EVs? Yeah, I mean, we've always had a bit of a, a, a more robust market when it comes to aftermarket service providers uh, here in North America, particularly in the U.S., um, compared to some of the other markets around the world. Um, and, you know, I think that that says a couple of things, right? One, I would say, you know, considering uh, how we're we're moving towards um, more kind of direct uh, kinds of relationships between the consumer and the brand through digital tools when it comes to selling of vehicles, um, the dealer, the dealer, and the retail network really needs to be much more focused on. Uh, building out their service capabilities and and um, you know claiming making sure that you claim the maximum amount of share from the vehicles that are on the road, right? Particularly the ones that you actually sell. We know that you know, for instance, we know that as vehicles age out, they tend to uh, to to float more into the aftermarket for service because people become. Um, you know, more cost conscious as vehicles age and they need more service and repair type of work. Um, and over time, we also know that new vehicle dealers have become perhaps a little accustomed, a little complacent perhaps, um, and in not really targeting um, that age of vehicle, right? They're, um, 
you know, they have over time become uh, more concentrate on, on things like warranty work and, you know, just the uh, kind of general service and maintenance for, you know, up to three-year-old vehicles. But then it starts to, the, the share of servicing starts to erode. And that's just not going to be the case. I mean, you know, the successful dealers going forward are going to be the ones that really do double down on on uh, on capturing the majority of those service occasions for older vehicles, right? So now, you know, we looked at it in our study just by, you know, looking at how people acquired the, the vehicle that they're currently driving. So for example, for the, the people that, that whose current vehicle was acquired used, only 27% of those people take their vehicle back to the dealer for service, right? And that's, uh, if I was a dealer right now, a, a branded dealer, I would say, you know, that's got to change. I've got to be capturing more of that because that's where the, the revenue and profitability opportunities are going to be going forward. What was the most interesting takeaway regarding connected vehicle technology among consumers in the U.S. market from, from, from the study? This is really interesting, right? Because, you know, we know that it's, I guess the, the answer starts with um, kind of a longer term view of where we think vehicle demand is going to go. And certainly, you know, we agree with a lot of the forecasters out there that, that are talking about the next decade of vehicle demand being much different and much more challenging than, say, the last decade of vehicle demand, certainly up to the point where, uh, you know, the pandemic kind of took over. And, and so we're not going to be in a situation where we're likely not going to be in a situation where we can just count on uh, year over year gains in, uh, in vehicle demand going forward. It's going to be a much more challenging environment as the pie just isn't, isn't you know, going to grow, right? It's going to stagnate or decline, in fact. And so what that sets up is, you know, the, the manufacturers and their captive finance companies primarily are scrambling right now. They're looking for every opportunity um, to develop new revenue streams and new profit pools. And one of the ways, I mean, one of the one of the ones, the profit pools that kind of rises to the surface immediately is, you know, through connected technologies. How do uh, manufacturers develop and and be able to monetize, um, you know, the connectivity technology that's going into vehicles? And so, you know, we've been reading, as, as I'm sure you have and, and all your listeners have, about, you know, subscription services, and that's the way to unlock, you know, new revenue streams. When in fact, you know, we wanted to probe that directly in our study results, and we asked a very simple question. We said to uh, U.S. consumers, how would you most prefer to pay for additional, or additional connectivity technologies in your vehicle? And we gave them a, a, you know, essentially three options, right? One, you want to pay for it as as a as part of your uh, upfront as part of the purchase price of the vehicle. Do you want to be charged on a per use basis when you actually need these uh, these technologies or or features, or do you want to to pay for them as part of a, a monthly service to which you subscribe? And you know, it's very interesting to to, to see the results where forty six percent of U.S. consumers tell us that they would much rather pay for those technologies as part of the, the upfront cost of the vehicle, which goes all the way back to the affordability issue thing that we started off talking about, right? The, that tells me that how I interpret that data is that people just want to amortize the cost of connectivity technologies over the, the full life of their uh, lease or loan term, right? So 
Um, you know, people are getting a bit um, uh, fatigued, I guess, with the monthly subscriptions that that they're already sub- that they're already subjected to, right? Whether it's in the uh, in the um, entertainment field or you know for streaming services or you know a variety of other things that that people are subscribed to to in their daily lives. And so when 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 OEMs you know think about um, how to monetize, how to develop these services, they got to think very carefully about you know how they're going to be offering those and, and making it attractive to to consumers. That that really sh- shifts the business model for OEMs, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. I mean, it has the potential to for sure, right? Um, you know, when you if you are setting your business up so that you're going to be doubling down on things like you know over the air updates or OTAs, and um, and you're uh, you're wanting to develop that exclusively through a subscription model. I think you got to kind of think again, right? I mean, there's still the door open to those people who want to, um, you know, pay for things on an on a on an as used basis. So there's still a a need for that kind of micro transaction um, infrastructure. But by and large, you know, the way that the economy uh, or the 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 concerns around uh, potentially where the economy is going, at least in the near term, is causing a lot of concern amongst consumers, right? So, you know, they're wanting, they're, they're thinking very carefully about, you know, how they can afford um, to still access some of these new technologies going forward. Now, the good news is, you know, through another study that we run, we know that, um, you know, the, uh, the number one motivator for people to want to buy a vehicle in the next six months is the fact that they, they see new vehicles on the market with features that they want. Right. And that tells me that, you know, people are very interested in the new technologies that are hitting the market. It's just figuring out, you know, how to, to monetize that at the, at the OEM level. Mm -hmm. In closing, um, Ryan, what is the biggest takeaway from the survey overall for leadership in, in the auto retail business? I think we've already hit on it. To be honest, Marcus, I think that, you know, as you, you think about how the, the whole market is shifting and the, the idea that, you know, um, uh, people, um, people are, are more willing to, uh, to think about, you know, conducting more of that sale online. It's not that um, you know we I, we think that dealers are going to be disintermediated from the sales process, but it is going to shift um, how the relationship uh, and the the role that that the retailers play versus the role that the brands play going forward. And there's always been I mean we've known that there's there's always been a a friction there between the the OEs and and the dealers when it comes to when it comes to the consumer. And that relationship's got to shift, right? So, um, so there's lots of, of work being done and conversations being had around just what the future of, of auto retail looks like. And then there's the service end of things that, um, that we talked about earlier. The, the last point that I'll bring up is, you know, we wanted to probe, uh, just given the, the kinds of vehicle inventory issues that we've been dealing with over the last several months, we wanted to know from, 
U.S. consumers whether or not the attitude towards the amount of time that people are willing to wait for a, a new vehicle is shifting. And right now it's, you know, it's somewhere around half of our survey respondents tell us that they'd be willing to wait somewhere between three weeks and 12 weeks for their new vehicle, which is, you know, night and day from where we were back in 2018 when consumers were telling us that they were driving off the lot. 30% of consumers are telling us they were driving off the lot the same day they started physically shopping for their new vehicle. So you know, something is, is shifting and it may be an unintended benefit of the inventory crisis. When I think about, when I put my dealer hat on and I say, well, maybe there, that offers me, you know, a lot more opportunity to think very differently about, you know, uh, even where my dealer is located and what businesses do I have to have under a single roof, right? Do I need to carry as much inventory on my lot, which exposes me to all sorts of you know, floor planning uh, costs, um, you know, so it really does. There's a lot of things that are changing right now and, and dealers are, are definitely front and center in that evolution. Well, great insight, Brian. Uh, thanks again for, for joining us and, and giving us some insight on, on this survey. Absolutely. Thanks again for, for, uh, for the invitation. Always love uh, joining you and, and your listeners. Now, Back to the noise.